you've had a good day. I'm reading from Amazing Grace, page 146, paragraph 3. The truth is no truth to the one who does not reveal by his elevated spiritual character a power beyond that which the world can give. You get all of that? The truth is no truth to the one who does not reveal by his elevated spiritual character a power beyond that which the world can give, an influence corresponding in its sacred, peculiar character to the truth itself. He who is sanctified by the truth will exert a saving, vital influence upon all with whom he comes in contact. This is Bible religion. This is the religion we all need. This is the religion that God wanted his people to exemplify and which they have failed to do. Let us kneel. Our Father which art in heaven, we are thankful to thee for thy Sabbath day and for all the other blessings and mercies that thou hast bestowed upon us. We ask thee now as we bow in divine presence that thy Holy Spirit will be here to inform our minds and to lead us into truth. Help us, Lord, to have attentive minds and keep them stayed upon thee that we may receive and assimilate what thou hast for us. Bless not only us here, but all thy children, wherever they may be. Thou knowest all about them and their needs. We cannot acquaint thee with them, but we do commit them into thy care and ask thee that thou will bless them as thou seest best. Help us all, Lord, now to determine that by the grace that thou hast for us, to walk in the light as thou art in the light, and to represent thee aright, to cease to follow the ways of the world, to be overcomers, and to make sure of our calling and election. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to uh, dwell upon a twofold uh, theme today, and I have loosely entitled it The Lord's Voice and the Gospel Message. Now, there are many who purport to be preaching the gospel message and to be the Lord's voice. The world is literally full of them. Not only in the Adventist church, we have some among our own selves, throughout uh, Christendom, but uh, otherwise too. So one is confronted with the problem of voices, voices on every hand. So I ask the question first, what is his voice in the world today? Now this is all important. I don't know of any question that I could ask myself or ask you would be more important th than this, other than uh, how is my standing with God? What is his voice in the world today? I know if we're listening to his voice, the Lord is going to take care of us. That is a foregone conclusion. So the big question is, uh, are we listening to his voice if we know his voice? And if we don't know his voice, then are we determined to find it? Are we in pursuit of it? Through the ages, his voice has been variously manifested. Now, I might elucidate upon this uh, truism, which is an obvious fact. Uh, his voice has been manifested not in just one mode, one way, one place, 
but many. And as I've mentioned here, from a burning bush, from Mount Sinai, from the Shekinah, from the mouth of a donkey, through a rod, and so on. Now, I've only named just five here. There are many, many more. You could compile a great long list of the ways in which God has manifested his voice. Now, in the end time, it is being manifest through a figurative rod, a message of correction and warning. Now, if you, if you read the Spirit of Prophecy aright, you know that there's much uh, counsel, much correction, and much reproof, some rebuke, because the church is in that condition that needs all of that. So if God is going to come with a message that is going to perform that function, that necessary function, it's going to have to be a message of reproof and correction. And that's what a rod is a symbol of. A rod is a symbol of correction. My dad taught me that when I was a youngster. My mother enforced it too. So I learned what the rod was for. Well, some of our young people today haven't learned that well enough. You see. And if, uh, if their parents and the authorities still believed in the Bible, there'd be less crime in our midst today. That would have been taken care of uh, long before they were let loose on the public. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. I'm quoting from Micah 6, 9. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. And the first verse of the chapter tells you the city is Jerusalem. And that's a symbol of the church. Now, historically, Jerusalem was the place where the temple was, where they worshipped. So today, Jerusalem stands for the church when, we, when we're talking in these terms. The Lord's voice crieth unto the city. So now immediately we see that God is speaking to the city. The city is his church. This is what the Spirit of Prophecy shows. This is what the Bible shows. The city is his church. It's the city of Laodicea today. And God is crying unto the city. Crying unto the city because the city is asleep. Sound asleep. Confirmed in its, in its Laodicean attitudes of being rich and uh, increased with goods and needing nothing at all. In other words, the city thinks it has all the truth there is to have. We say we speak of the truth, so we've got it, you see. We don't need any more. We don't need to wake up. We don't need to do anything but keep on doing what we're doing. Now, really down deep in their hearts, some know better than this. But the enemy has them so locked into this Laodicean attitude that everything's all right. It's all going to come out in the wash, as we say, that they really gloss it over and forget about it and don't worry themselves about it. Once in a while, the Holy Spirit's able to prick their conscience. They'll stir up the congregation some. Right afterwards, lapse right back into the same old thing, and maybe worse too. You see, this is the way it's going all around the world until there can be all kinds of troubles, all kinds of, of uh, situations such as developed with the, uh, with the finances, you know. Um, they're in terrible trouble. The, um, they've lost the Harris Pine Mills, which was their, uh, their leading uh, uh, operation. Uh, they're in danger of losing some of their sanitariums because they're deep in the red. 
there are a number of other problems that uh, haven't surfaced so far as the, the church as a whole knows about, but that many do know about. And they're very embarrassing. In fact, the world is not letting them uh, forget it, that they know about it. And the churches, especially the Protestant churches, are not letting them forget it because Adventists have been at pains uh, to uh, publicize some of the problems in the Lutheran church and uh, in the Presbyterian church and some of the other churches through the years. So now I guess they're getting back on the church uh, as they think what is deserving. And perhaps that's the way it is. But through this agency, his rod, he is to do marvelous things. Now this is what Micah 7.14 says. He's going to do marvelous things through the rod. Zechariah 8 says the same thing. It doesn't specify the rod, but it does speak of the marvelous things he's going to do. What are these marvelous things? Now I can't think of anything more marvelous to start with than that God would be able to come and wake up 144,000 sleeping people. See? They're the sleeping virgins, but they're the wise virgins. They haven't committed themselves to uh, uh, a policy of, of no more truth, no more light, as the majority have, you see. Now, in my travels and work through the years, I've met quite a few. I wouldn't say many, many, but quite a few, up into the dozens, perhaps, that will tell you that we have all the light we need. In fact, they preface their statement, says, Sister White says, we have all the light we need. Sister White never uttered, never breathed such a thought. Sister White says just the opposite. She says, light, brethren, more light we need. And then maybe two to three dozen other pertinent statements to enforce that one, you see. Well, that's in testimonies to ministers. <laughs> Through the agency of his rod, he is to do marvelous things in bringing his remnant flock into the saving bond of the covenant. Now, I, this is in quotes, the saving bond of the covenant. Uh, you read in Ezekiel 20, verse 37, about the bond of the covenant. And I'll read it uh, later. Uh, he says that, uh, he is going to uh, cause his people to pass under the rod and bring them into the bond of the covenant. And I believe that you folk, all of you here, realize that there's no salvation outside of the covenant, the covenant that was sealed with the blood of Christ. I think all Seventh-day Adventists who uh, are knowledgeable at all know this. There's no salvation outside of the covenant. The whole Protestant world knows it. The Catholics know it. All Christians know it. But outside of the bond of the covenant, there's no salvation. Now, for these last days, the end time, the Lord says that we're going to have to pass under his rod to come into the bond of the covenant. That's simply telling us that we're going to have to accept present truth, just as every generation has had to do. And the present truth today is, is being sounded worldwide through the publications of the rod. Now, to come under the rod simply means to obey them. First, we're to hear them, feed upon the rod, and then come under the rod in obedience to it. Manifestly, therefore, his voice is his rod. Now, that was a question asked at the beginning. 
what is his voice in the world today? So after quoting what the Lord says here in Micah 6, 9, that we're to hear his voice, hear his rod, then we know what his voice is. So manifestly, therefore, his voice is his rod. And his message is this gospel of the kingdom. Now we ask the question, what is the voice and what is the message? The voice is the rod. The message is this gospel of the kingdom. Uh, this has always been, minus the, uh, the uh, demonstrative pronoun here, this, we'll take it off for the moment. This has always been the message, the gospel of the kingdom. From the very beginning, when the kingdom was lost, the Lord set his hand to, to uh, gain again the kingdom, uh, to wrest it from the usurper who had gotten it from Adam and Eve. This has been the work of the gospel, is to get the kingdom back again to those to whom it was given in the beginning. Now, the Lord has added the word, this gospel of the kingdom. There's only one time in the Bible you find it, this gospel of the kingdom. Otherwise, it's always the gospel of the kingdom. Now, Christ came not to teach some um, subjective glad tidings, as many have it. I don't know where they get it from, their own idea what the glad tidings may be. But the gospel, the glad tidings that Christ preached, were the glad tidings of the kingdom. In all of his parables, in all of his utterances about the kingdom, it was the gospel of the kingdom. Or I should say in all of his utterances about the gospel, it was the gospel of the kingdom. It never separates them. Always the gospel of the kingdom. Now why this gospel of the kingdom down here in these last days? That's in Matthew 24, 14. It says, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world, for witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come. Now you see why the, the pronoun this is supplied in this last reference? The gospel that Christ referred to in all the other passages was not necessarily confined to the last days, nor to the former days, nor to the, uh, to the Middle Ages. It was the gospel of the kingdom, and that was it. But now... As the gospel of the kingdom is to be preached, it's this gospel of the kingdom. So there's something antecedent to the word this. And this is what the message has brought. Just what is this gospel of the kingdom? What does it comprehend? Uh, where does it begin and where does it end? And through whom and what instrumentality is it to come? These are the pertinent questions that we need to know and to have the answer to. This brings me to um, a very short statement here in this little book, Faith and Works. It says, we want the truth on every point. I say amen to that. Amen. If we don't have the truth on every point, then we're in error, and error doesn't save. Error destroys. So God's got the truth on every point. The righteous will get the truth on every point. And it says we want the truth on every point. We need it, in other words. What was the page on that? That was page 45, paragraph 3. So, since we want the truth at every point, then we want to study to get the truth at every point. We want to take heed to God's admonition that we prove all things and hold fast that which is good. That makes eminent good sense, don't you think? I should do that in everything. 
then we won't get taken in on anything, right? Trouble is, we're like um, we're like some little birds. They open their mouth and they go along in the air. They swallow everything. The swallows and, and the uh, um, the bird that flies at night. What's his name? The whippoorwill and there may be some others. They just keep their mouths open, fly around all over everywhere, and take in all the insects they can take. You see, well. Some people are like that. They go along with their mouths open and swallow everything, you know. And so they're constantly in hot water, as they say, in trouble. Manifestly, therefore, his voice is his rod, and his message is this gospel of the kingdom. Now, I deliberate on this because I'm making, I'm differentiating between the gospel from time immemorial, the glad tidings of the restitution of all things, from the day they were lost in the Garden of Eden to down here at the end of the end time period when God is to restore all things, when restitution is really to be become a reality, not just a prophecy, see, not just a preaching, but it's actually uh, to take place. We're to see the consummation of the tidings, the good tidings, the preaching of the kingdom, you see. So that's why the Lord says, this gospel of the kingdom now. Now, in the days of Noah, the gospel of the kingdom was um, the building of the ark, the uh, saving of those who would go into the ark, all the animals that would go in, they took in. That was the gospel of the kingdom. In other words, or I should say, um, the ark itself a sanctuary became the symbol of the kingdom. See, the kingdom is the sanctuary from this world. And that's what the ark was. The world was coming to its end then. And the Lord gave the world the symbol of the kingdom. All who would go into the ark were going into the kingdom. How many went in? Eight, eight souls. Think of it. Eight souls. But eight is the number of a new order. And out of that old order, which is represented by seven, a new order came into being. One plus seven, you see. A new order. And that started after the flood had uh, finished its work. After the Lord had finished his work through the flood and the aftermath of it. So we're to go into the ark of safety today when the plagues cannot come nigh our dwelling. Just as the rain couldn't hurt them back there, you see. They were secure. They were sealed. They were marked and sealed then. Not by the truth we have today. Not by the truth they had in Christ's day. Not even by the truth they had in Moses' day, you see. They were marked and sealed by the present truth at that time, the gospel of the kingdom. They didn't know much about it. All they knew about it was what God revealed through Noah. He could have revealed a great deal more. It wasn't time to do it. He gave them what they needed at that time for their salvation, you see. And only eight had ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts to believe, you see and wills to act. Terrible tragedy. Just think of the millions that were lost. I assume there were millions. I don't know how many there were. There were many. Now we're in a world today that's facing the same um, crisis, the same finality. The world's to be destroyed. And now God's not going to deal with this generation any differently than he did with that generation. He doesn't love us anymore and he loved them, and vice versa. So God is even-handed. Uh, there's no... Uh, uh, favor with him. He's going to he's going to purge the world today as he purged the world then of its iniquity, its wickedness, its corruption, and all that resulted from all of that that made the world what it was. He's going to do the same today. It's going to be a terrible time just out ahead of us.
And if we if we do not if we do not have a shelter for ourselves, same thing's going to happen to us as happened to them. So the Lord needs now. He needs the voice and he needs the message. He had the voice back there in the ancient world and the uh, world that that Noah was born into. Noah was that voice. Noah didn't know he was going to be that voice when he grew up, when he was growing. He didn't know that. But the day came when God called him, made him know that he was his voice in the world at that time. And Noah faithfully sounded the warning, the tidings, you see. And the tidings always have a warning, the good tidings, the glad tidings, that if we accept the truth, we accept salvation. If we don't, we destroy ourselves. And this is what Noah told them, faithfully told. With every blow of the hammer, we are told. They didn't believe. Now the same thing today. God raised up a remnant people today in 1844 and on and charged them of what to do to save themselves and the world. Well, they ran well for a while and then ceased to do so until by 1888 they had they had so blinded their eyes and uh, numbed their souls that they couldn't see the truth. They couldn't, uh, they couldn't choose the good from the evil. Though they rejected it, even though they say they didn't. Everybody that knows the truth knows they did. See? The message of 1888, the righteousness of Christ, justification by faith. And consequently, they've suffered greatly ever since because of the lack of power that that message uh, would have uh, delivered for every individual who accepted it. Tragedy, you see. Had to go 40 years then without any more. Now what we're concerned about is the Ark of Safety today. And there's glad tidings about it. This is what God wants to, to set up as his kingdom. He wants to set it up in this world. He doesn't wait till the new world. Why wait till the new world? He had the kingdom in this world. If he lost the kingdom in this world and can't bring it back in this world, who gets the victory? The devil gets the victory. If the devil can keep God from restoring what he put in the Garden of Eden, then the devil wins. So you can see what's involved in this great controversy. And it was the devil's, it was one of the devil's, if not the devil's, uh, neatest deception, greatest deception, that the kingdom won't be until the new earth. You see. Well, some will say, yes, it'll be in heaven. Well, why put it in heaven? It wasn't there in the beginning. And the new earth we never had. <laughs> so don't you see what folly it is to think that God is going to delay the setting up of his kingdom uh, until uh, some uh, post-probationary uh, uh, time? It's got to be done here in this time. So we want to go into the, into the ark of safety, into the kingdom. And that's why he, he's, he's given us this gospel of the kingdom is to be preached where? How far? In all the world. You see. As a witness unto all nations. And then what's going to come? Now, why preach this gospel if it isn't to bring the people out? You see, this gospel of the kingdom. Bring it out into an existing kingdom. <laughs> what foolishness it is to think otherwise. And when that work is accomplished, when God's got every honest soul out of all the nations of the world, in the kingdom, then the end will come. The end of probation will come, and then a little while later, will end the plagues, and Christ will come and take us all home. You see, those who have fitted themselves up, who have put on the garment 
of Christ's righteousness. But now in the spending hours of end time, there is an ever-increasing proliferation of claimants to being the voice of God. I guess you're aware of this. You can turn your radio on, your television on, and they come on one right after another, you see. And there's there are many, many more that don't get on the radio, don't get on the television, are localized. Now, I'll read to you from, I'm anticipating uh, what I, where I'd put this later, but I think I'll bring it right to you here. This is 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter, from the 10th verse. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world. Oh, this is no myth. We see it with our eyes. We hear it with our ears. We come and contact it with it everywhere. And the Lord says it's so. So we're not dreaming. We're not hallucinating. And none of them is without signification. It says that they all have some truth. Don't you see? And that's how people get deceived. Well, the devil knows how to suit truth to the individual. He knows, he knows uh, just what affinity the mind has for what particle of truth. Not for every particle of truth but for certain particles of truth. So he's going to feed that mind, that particular uh, uh, particle of truth. That's why you have all kinds of different little groups, you know. Uh, this one has got this hobby horse, and this one's got this one. Each one rides his own little hobby horse. And some join them and ride with them, you see. And there's some big ones, too. Uh, there's some, some real capitalists among them. We've just been learning in the last few days here what's happened to, what is the name of this one? Yeah, what they call that empire is? PTL. What's that stand for? People that love. People that love. The people that love. Well, I'm sure among them there are people that love all right, but there are a lot of deceived folk among them. But that's a pity. But now in the spending hours of end time, there is an ever-increasing proliferation of claimants to being the voice of God. Now, I read it. Paul declares, oh, I had it right here. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and none of them is without signification. 1 Corinthians 14.10. He further declares, and this is in 1 Corinthians 8.5, he further declares, there are God's many and Lord's many. Now you can see what's uh, the trouble in this world. God's many and Lord's many. And this makes me think, of this very important statement here in the 51st chapter of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 51, verse 7. Jeremiah 51, 7. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand. Now as Adventists, what do we believe about Babylon? Who does Babylon represent? What does Babylon represent? What? False religion. False religion? False religion in, in um, just a static false religion or false religion in what? Protestant churches. In churches, in the Protestant churches. So Babylon represents basically the Protestant churches. This is what Adventists believe. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. What's Babylon done? All the earth drunken with what kind of wine? False theology. See, false doctrine, false teaching. The whole wide world, that is the, the Christian world, is drunk with these false teachings. Now, do you think any of them have crept into the Seventh-day Adventist church? Yes. You see, God gave the Adventist church truth. And he put, a, he put a hedge about the truth, these testimonies, so that error wouldn't come in. But since 
the devil brought in the tares. Christ brought in the wheat, the devil brought in the tares, and the two are commingled. So what did they bring with them, these tares? Did they bring truth and righteousness? They brought error and unrighteousness. And many of these doctrines they brought into the church have become hoary with age. They've been venerated. I'll read this to you. See? Until finally we don't know truth from error as a people. Now that's why God says we need to know the truth, right? On every point. And he'll lead us into truth. That's what the Holy Spirit is committed to do. To lead us into how much truth? All truth, you see. Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. Now notice, the nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Now, you wouldn't get you wouldn't get one out of a million to believe this, that the madness of the nations is due to false doctrine. You see, taught by the churches. This is what God said. This isn't what the Adventist churches originated. This is what God says in the book. That the wine of Babylon has made the minds of people mad. And a lot of them are not where they might better be in institutions. A lot of them are not there. He further declares there are God's many and Lord's many. I read that. And Jesus himself warned... And this is Matthew 24, 24, easy to remember, 24, 24. Jesus himself warned, there shall arise false Christs and false prophets. Now what did Paul say in in the 8th chapter in the 5th verse? God's many and Lord's Lord's many. Jesus says in Matthew 24, 24, there be false Christs and false prophets. That's something to have to confront and battle against, you see. This is, this is what is, is the problem uh, in the churches and the problem in the world. That all of these false voices are leading people astray, down the wrong road, piping them uh, like the Pied Piper of Hamlin into, into uh, perdition. Yes, and Jesus said, There shall arise false Christs and false prophets, and shall show great signs and wonders. Well, we haven't seen all of these signs and wonders yet. So you can see what is ahead of us. We've seen it plenty in the world today. The scourge that's come upon the world through AIDS. A lot of other things you see that's in the world. Terrorism that never existed before as it, in the form it does today. Wars and rumors of war. Now another uh, very, very serious rumor is, is confronting the European nation. Uh, Greece and Turkey are about at it again as they've been through the uh, through the ages or through the years and other things, no end of things, uh, insomuch that if possible, they shall deceive the very elect. Now, this is what we're interested in. This is what we're, well, more than interested. This is what we're concerned about. We want to be among the elect. We're in the right church. No question about that. Seventh-day Adventist church has the God-given message. It is a church of prophecy. It came up in response to prophecy, the fulfillment of prophecy. And it's the only church that is the church of the judgment, declaring the people, declaring the judgment. That's what the word Laodicea means. No other church is declaring the judgment, not as the Adventist church is. So we're in the right church, even if they have thrown us out, you see, because we believe the rod. But we're in the right church. We believe the right message, the third angel's message. We have the light on the fourth angel's message that is to join the third angel's message. 
We know that that has come in the message of the hour. We know all of this. No, we don't want to be deceived. And this tells us that he's going to deceive the very elect if possible. Now, it's not possible to deceive the very elect, but it is possible to deceive those who think they are of the very elect. Those who are not taking heed to themselves and to the doctrine. They think they are the very elect, and they're going to be deceived. Going to be deceived by some of these fancy uh, heresies in the church. Well, I don't know when I, where I have that one listed to read to you, but I'll read it to you right here. Two passages here. One on page 48 of Testimonies to Ministers, the book the ministers should be reading, which was dedicated to them and which they don't pay any attention to, at least not many I've found. Well, this statement is at the top of page 48. False doctrine is one of the satanic influences. One of the satanic influences. Let's just tell us now. There are other satanic influences than false doctrine. Is one of the satanic influences that work in the church. That work in the church. Not work in the world to pull people out of the church. But work in the church to bring into it those who are unconverted in heart. So what's the devil doing? He stole the march on us, you see. He's got our eyes blinded. He's got the blindfold over our eyes. And he's bringing in hordes of them, nearly five million today. When I became a Seventh-day Adventist, there were something like um, 250,000 or a few more than that. I can't remember the exact figure. Then it went up to a million or something. I can't go much further. Two million, three million, four million. Now it's on, on its way up to five million. What will it be in the end? See, they're bringing them in, as I say, with rings on their nose and rings on their toes and every other condition. You see, everything goes. They say, we'll get them in and convert them afterwards. This is what volume five says. And then put the hurdles down so they can walk right on in. They don't have to go over the hurdles of truth and of requirements, you see. It's too bad this is what is in the church. False doctrine is one of the satanic influences. Now, this is even worse. This is page 409 of volume of the same book here, the Testimonies of Ministers. Now, this is entitled The Fatal Choice, meaning ministers here. Unsanctified ministers are arraying themselves against God in the church. A fatal choice. And the, this is coming to light all the time in different ones. Now, this is the last paragraph. Many will stand in our pulpits. He's not going to stand in the, pul in the Protestant pulpit. Many will stand in our pulpits with a torch of false prophecy in their hand. Now, what are they lifting up? The torch. That's a light. A false prophecy. It's a false light. The torch of false prophecy in their hand. Now, what do you think it's kindled from? Couldn't be kindled by Christ. Kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. That's what it says. Standing in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hand, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. Folk, it's hard for me to believe this. I know it's so because I've encountered it for over 50 years. My brother over there who's been teaching the message for a long, long time in the islands in St. Lucia. He knows it too. Uh, these men who have been in the field here, uh, Danny and uh, my son, Gerald, they know it too. And the rest of you know it too from the experience you've had. See, You see it. It's in all the churches. There isn't a church on earth in which, Adventist church, in which some of this is not in. Many, and that says, it doesn't say a few, many will stand in our pulpits that's a terrible thing. God, God has ordained ministers to go into the pulpit to feed the flock, to warn them, to encourage them, to stir them up, as Peter said. He was not going to be remiss to stir up his people, even though they 
they be established in the present truth. This is what God wanted in the church today. Now he's got a ministry that has to be purged. He says, sleeping people preaching to a sleeping people. Isn't that a picture for you? Sleeping people, preaching, preaching, preaching to a sleeping people. Many will stand in our pulpits with the torch of false prophecy in their hand, kindled from the hellish torch of Satan. I'll keep this book open because I'm going to read this page here pretty soon. In the midst of this confusing cacophony, and you music people know what cacophony is, that's, uh, that's discord, all kinds of sounds. In the midst of this confusing cacophony of voices, what distinctive feature will enable the very elect to distinguish the true, the rod of God, from the false, all the other claimants, the jubilee exponents? Now, some of you haven't heard of the Jubilee Exponents. There are three different ones who have been teaching a message that the final Jubilee is to take place next year. Or was it this year? It's supposed to be this year. It's supposed to be this year. Poor people. I've seen too many disappointed false prophets. I hate to see these fellows too. But the three of them, they got quite a crowd following them too. Well, they've gone into this thing in depth, and it's pretty persuasive. The way they have built it up block upon block upon block until... It's hard to refute it. You've got to get into it from the bottom and go along with it. You only know that their time setting is wrong for the spirit of prophecy says so. No more time setting. But they've, they've had to set time because the Jubilee is so many years. And when, they, when they've got the starting point for the Jubilee, they got themselves into the same trap that Sister Hadith got herself into when she said that the three and a half years, we were into the three and a half years. Well, then they had to end sometime, didn't they? If we were in the three and a half years. So she said she didn't know where they began, but she knew we were in the three and a half years. Well, that's funny to me. But anyway, we said, all right, we'll take, the three, we'll take this point where you're saying you know we're in the three and a half years. We'll start them here. Three and a half, start right here. Though so she said they started somewhere else. So three and a half years went by, and of course she was embarrassed, and a lot of others too. And this has happened again and again in the Adventist Church, right from the very beginning, till God told Sister White to tell them in plain words, Time no longer what? That's right. But still would do it. I think I better reread this. In the midst of this confusing cacophony of voices, what distinctive feature, this is what I want to emphasize now, what distinctive feature will enable the very elect to distinguish the true, the rod of God, from the faults, the other claimants, the jubilee exponents, the watchman on the walls of Zion, that's referring to uh, Elder Grothier's watchman on the walls of Zion. He thinks that God has put him here to chastise the brethren uh, uh, in, in Washington and, and to be a watchdog there. I don't worry with him. If that's what God put him to do, let him do it. But he's way off base, I know, so far as the truth is concerned. So I don't think God put him there. Uh, the watchman on the walls of Zion is another organ. It... it uh, it's conducted by uh, Dr. Rue uh, in California, and it, 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 it takes in about everything. If you've got an idea, you, can, you probably can get it published there. Maybe if you give them a little bit to help publish. Everybody that wants to sound off gets into the lay worker, and they think this is the way it's going to be finished, by the layman doing that. See, this is a terrible deception. The laymen are going to finish this message. This is what Sister White said. The, the ministry is not going to finish the message because they won't accept the truth. So she says the layman, the lay workers will finish the message. Well, it's got to be then the last message to the church. And if the rod is the voice of God, the last message to the church, it's going to be made up mainly of laymen. Now, do you see a lot of preachers around here? <laughs> you go to any rod meeting in the country? 
you won't see many preachers. There's all the art there. Uh, then a few, but not many. And if a preacher comes here, you know what will happen to him? Well, they'll unfuck him fast. Yes, the Jubilee exponents, the watchman on the walls of Zion, the lay worker, prophecy countdown. Have you heard of prophecy countdown? Well, it's very popular now, you know. And uh, it's being uh, conducted by a loud voice, and loud voices, you know, they can make themselves heard. And they got a lot of support and raking in lots of money. Prophecy Countdown. I thought I had something here about that. 1888 re-examined by the two who brought it in the beginning, Elder Wheeland and Short. The denomination squashed them, but they're still trying to bring it back again because they're, they're uh, sustentation workers now. Uh, the Voice of Unwalled Villages. You know that? That's out of the, uh, the West Coast in California. Uh, the Various Sanctuary and New Theology Voices. A lot of them now. And the popular Amazing Facts. You've heard Amazing Facts. All right, now I'm going to, going to read you an Amazing Fact. Now there's a, a brother and sister out in Arizona who have heard this message, and uh, they've been listening to Amazing Facts. So they wrote uh, a letter to Amazing Facts. I didn't bring the letter with me, but they said, Well, the shepherd rod teaches that uh, the stone of... Uh, Brother Moore, come throw this over here. Will you please get the stone for me? that the stone of Daniel 2 uh, are Davidians. And uh, this is the reply. Thank you, Brother Moore. Dear John, pretty personal. This is from the correspondent there, Amazing Facts. And the brother's name is, his first name is John. Thank you for your letter of January 28. Brother Cruz uh, has, been, has seen it and shares your concerns. He too would like to see a genuine revival in our church. I don't doubt that. There are a lot of them like to see it. But they're all going about it their own way, you see. Now, uh, man can generate quite a lot of steam, a lot of light. But that's not God's doing. The devil's been using men to generate a lot of steam and a lot of light all along the way to fool people. And don't you think that those who could be fooled, uh, even almost of the elect, are going to be, encounter plenty of this false light? Not going to be something simple that's going to get them. He too would like to see a genuine revival in our church. It seems we have come a long way from what the servant of the Lord encouraged us to do. Well said, and it's sure true. We've come a long, long way. No, we are not at liberty to eat blood now. Well, this is a question he put to them. Uh, see Acts and so on. No, I don't need to read this. We cannot agree with the shepherd's rod's claim that they are the stone of Daniel 2. Now, he's saying that we claim to be the stone of Daniel 2, you see, and they can't agree with that. Well, I can't either. This could not be since in that prophecy, Daniel 2, it clearly states that when the stone descends, amazing, 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 that, that Cruz could make a statement like this, that the stone descends. There's nothing in Daniel 2. Go home and read it. Not an intimation that the stone descends. What does it say about the stone? It says the stone is cut out of the mountain without hands. And, and the mountain all through the Bible is the church. Now, this stone is cut out without hands. Now, I want you to see. You see that mountain there? None of it was any good. It was just a stone. That's all that was preserved out of that mountain. You think that came from heaven? What was this thing in heaven? What was it doing up there? And if the stone represented Christ, what was Christ? Uh, what was God doing? Uh, uh, I'll say incarcerating Christ in, in an old mountain. That was no good. How do you put Christ in that mountain? What form? What does it all mean? They all reduct this issue. Never will they come in conflict with it. 
They'll never, never do it. See? Now they'll deal with this. They'll write about this. They'll deal about Nebuchadnezzar and his dreams. Never, never will they touch this. You'll find this is true. Never. I'm surprised they even said as much as they said here. One that didn't just sidestep the whole thing. Uh, this could not be since that prophecy is clearly states that when the stone descends, it destroys all the nations represented by the image. It doesn't say any such thing. This is absolute uh, uh, error. It's just out of whole cloth, as it were. Not a, a, not a tissue of truth in it. How, how a man who is preaching about amazing facts could say that? This is an amazing piece of folly. Yeah, what it is. I had something here about this, but I don't see what it is. We still have the nations existing today, which are represented by the feet of the image. This means that the stone has not arrived yet. <laughs> well, there's some truth in what it says here. It does mean that the stone hasn't gone into action yet, right? But it doesn't mean that the stone has not arrived from above yet. I'd like to talk with Brother Cruz about that. I'm sure he would say, well, she misunderstood. That is not what I teach or something. He'd get out of that as fast as he could get. Uh, what, what are you going to do with, with men now like this? You see what I read here? What are they doing standing in our pulpits holding up what? Well, that's what that came from. You read what the Spirit of Prophecy says about Daniel 2, how they have how, how they have perverted the truth about Daniel 2. And now God's having to clean it up, you see. This this uh, mountain here is on earth. Mountains are not in heaven in the first place. And in the second place, uh, this mountain here is, is, is not all gold and silver. All the gold and silver was right there in that stone. Now they, they insist that that's Christ. I'll agree with them it's Christ, but it's not Christ in person. It's Christ in the person of 144,000. Christ in the person of his saints. Christ in the person of the redeemed. Christ has gotten into them through his truth and transformed them from what they were into what he is. So he is dwelling in them. You see, this is what he wants to see in all of us. To get out of us what we are, the old man, get into us Christ. And then when he's formed within us the hope of glory... Then, don't you see, when he gets 144,000 in the church, they're Christ. They're not themselves any longer. Their old selves are gone. Thank God. And when he presents them to the world, they present a solid front. Genuine article, what the, what the world's been looking for. See, that's when Christianity is going to set the world on fire, when God gets that stone. Now, how do you prove this? Somebody speak up. And when the stone smites the image, it becomes a great mountain. That stone is not going to remain a stone. What's going to happen to it? It's going to grow. See, that, since that stone is made up of humanity, that is, of redeemed humanity, see, that represents Christ and only Christ, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, then when that stone begins to grow, what does that show you is taking in? Wicked? Tears? Bad fish? Foolish virgin? Dross? What? More gold. More gold, you see. More redeemed souls. And this is your great multitude of Revelation 7, Isaiah 66, and others. That joining now the first fruits. Here are your first fruits come out of Laodicea. Your second fruits come out of Babylon. Great multitude that no man can number. And what does God say now in Revelation 18:4? Stay there. Don't worry. Is that what he says? No. Come he says, what? Come out of her, my people. 
So he's got people in Babylon, just as he has people here in Laodicea. But he's got to get these first. These are the first fruits, 144,000. We're not saying there are not going to be more who may be with him. There may be some Gentiles who will be with him. But anyway, the 144,000 are the numbered company. Now, when he calls them out of Babylon, it's not just a, a little handful, a numbered company. He says a great multitude that cannot be numbered. And that makes all your living fruits together. But God gets all of these together, then he rings down the curtain on the show. See? Probation ends. He throws down the censer and says, it's finished, it is done. Then what ensues? The seven last plagues. At the end of the seven last plagues, what happens? Christ appears. No change in the doctrine. It's simply God has brought now the truth of the kingdom. And this is what he's been working for from the time that Adam and Eve lost the kingdom in the Garden of Eden. That belonged to God. And as he brought out last night, that's good and very good. You think God is going to uh, uh, forfeit the kingdom and thus acknowledge that, that the enemy was greater than God, more powerful than God to the whole universe? Where does that put God? That puts God out of business. Okay. So God is going to restore all things, as Acts 3 tells us. And as Matthew 17, 11 tells us, he's going to send Elijah the prophet, you see, to conduct this work of restitution of all things. Elijah must first come and restore all things. I didn't hear. It was a rolling stone. It wasn't the rock Christ. And Adventists have been a pain for so a hundred years to try to disabuse the minds of people, especially Catholics, about this, you know, who have uh, insisted that uh, Peter was uh, the stone, and they built their church upon that stone. There's a vast difference between the stone, the human stone, the rock, Peter, and the divine stone, Christ. Now, uh, I, I, I think it was wonderful that God used the stone, for a stone is something that is almost indestructible. Stone, stone is in, endure, it's durable and enduring, and this is what the Lord wanted to show. Besides, the, the, it takes something to break up the, the image here. Keep in mind that this is iron down here. It had to be something to break it up. It's going to be this, this stone here that, that's uh, adamant, harder than flint. And that adamant will do it. It will break up the... So that when it opens up this, this stone, this is Babylon here, you see. When it opens this up, then what's God going to get? All the righteous are going to come out. But it's, it's, it's uh, tied up now. It's locked up. Hard to get any out except the, the, the tears that the devil brings into the church. Purposes to corrupt the church the more. <clears throat> the one feature that sets the rod apart on the mountaintop from the chorus of contenders in the lowlands is that while all of them are either non-prophetic or false prophetic voices, the rod is God-certified, more sure prophetic voice. In other words, the rod is brought to view four times in prophecy. These others are not mentioned, none of them. Now, that, that has to be important, that God has certified the voice for these last days, you see, and the rest of them are not certified at all. We have a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well, take heed. Now, how are you going to take heed to these others if they're not in prophecy? They're not a one of them in prophecy. So, when you, when, when, when you uh, read Micah 6, 9, the Lord's voice crieth unto the city, hear ye the rod, and Micah 7, 14, feed thy people with thy rod, and Ezekiel 
2037. It'll cause them to pass under the rod and bring them into the bond of the covenant. And Isaiah 11, speaking of Christ with a rod of, in his mouth. What kind of rod is it? It's a horrible picture to see Christ coming with a big rod sticking out of his mouth. Then what kind of a rod is it? Speaking rod. It's a speaking rod. You see, it's a message. A message of rebuke and reproof and correction to put God's people back on the track. But since the church is loaded, you see, with false brethren, with tares, then how many do you expect to see uh, uh, rescued and redeemed? Can't be many. See. And that's what this book tells us here. This is volume 5, page 136. <laughs> Paragraph 1. Because iniquity abounds, the love of many shall wax cold. Now, listen closely. The very atmosphere is polluted with sin. Soon, God's people will be tested by fiery trials. Now, this is the main point. And the great proportion of those who now appear to be genuine and true will prove to be base metal. Well, that's a terrible... This, I think, is a saddest statement in the spirit of prophecy. It's a foregone conclusion, unless you don't believe the spirit of prophecy. But for those who know the spirit of prophecy is God's truth for this time, they, they know that this is a terrible tragedy. The great proportion in the church. So if there's five million, take the great proportion of five million. If it gets to be six million, same thing. The more the devil brings in, the more they're going to be destroyed. They're only going to be that number. God saw from the beginning how many there were going to be. I say, listen, listen to the following uh, certification of the rod. Now, I read Micah 6, 9. Uh, quote back 7, 14 for me, please. Feed thy people with thy rod, the flock of thy heritage, which dwell solitary in the woods, in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. Now, a message came, uh, and uh, the work uh, went forth from Carmel. Carmel served its purpose, and now the message has come to Bashan, moved on from Carmel to Bashan. This isn't all. We're still in the Gentile world. The message is to go on to Gilead. Gilead is a symbol of a bomb, the healing bomb, that in the hands of the great physician. We don't have that uh, same distinction in Carmel and Bashan. The message was coming in Carmel. The message is being proclaimed of being bound up here from Bashan, but then... When it gets to Gilead, that's the kingdom that is that is in the offing now. When it gets there, then it's going to be preached by 144,000 uh, redeemed ministers. It's not going to be the kind of ministers you have today that get around to see you once in a year or two years, or maybe not at all. It depends how large the church is. And uh, God then is going to be able to reach the whole wide world, whereas today uh, they're being... Um, born faster than the church can keep up with. It hasn't entered into all countries and all languages. And Isaiah 11.4. Quote 11.4. To smite the earth with the rod of his mouth. That's what he speaks of, the rod of his mouth. Read it, please. But with righteousness shall he judge the poor and reprove with equity for the meek of the earth. Now, how is he going to do it? Uh, he's going to use his rod. That's what the, is a symbol of his reproof, you see. Go ahead. And he shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. So now he's going to reprove to save some, but those he can't save, what's he going to do? Slay. All right. Now we'll read from Ezekiel. Ezekiel, the 20th chapter. 
Ezekiel 20, 36 to 38. And I will come, uh, pardon me, and I will cause you, well, that's verse 37, and I will cause you to pass under the rod, and I will bring you into the bond of the covenant, and I will purge out from among you the rebels and them that transgress against me. I will bring them forth out of, out of the country where they sojourn, and they shall not enter into the land of Israel, and ye shall know that I am the Lord. These are the ones he has to eliminate, that whole great big mountain there. Oh, I didn't read to you from, from the mystery stone what the rod says about this. I told you what it said, but maybe I'll read it to you. This is from page 11 of mystery stone, and his paragraph, that's the next to last paragraph. Anyone who disinterestedly reads uh, this passage from uh, Daniel 2 uh, uh, must acknowledge also that it plainly declares that God's kingdom is represented by a stone designated the stone supernaturally, without hands, cut out of a mountain designated the mountain, and that this stone kingdom is to supersede all nations as represented by the feet and toes. Uh, this verse, verse 45, also makes obvious the fact that there is even more to this prophecy than foretelling the rise and fall of nations and their being broken up by God's kingdom. And the even more important, though generally ignored, aspect of the prophecy has to do with the stone and its origin what they never deal with. Uh, the mountain is its origin. It says the stone and its origin, the mountain. You will remember the scripture says that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands and then smote the image upon his feet. So in order to arrive at the complete truth of the, uh, of the kind of kingdom the stone represents, we must next ascertain the meaning of the mountain since the stone is part of it. And then it goes on to explain about the mountain, how it represents the church quoting from the Bible of Daniel 2, and now this passage on page 15. At his second coming, the wicked are destroyed, and the righteous, both living and resurrected, are caught up to him in the air. And yet, amazing fact says that when he comes, you all remember hearing it, when he comes, what's he going to do? He's going to do this work here, you see. Going to gather all the saints and earth then. And that stone's going to grow then, see, when he comes. That isn't what the Bible says. In fact, he doesn't even come down to earth. He comes in the clouds, and what does he do then? He opens the graves of the, of the righteous dead, brings them up, joins them with the living, with that stone right there. He didn't come to get that stone at all. He'd already gotten that stone, you see. And now the dead join with the living, what's he do with them? That's the kingdom. That's the kingdom replete with every saved soul. Resurrection is taking place. I'm going way back to Abel. Coming way down here to the last one. They're all there. Then he's going to take them all up. He's not going to drop this stone down and destroy uh, uh, and gather the, the, the ones that are joined to it. It is difficult to see how anything could be much plainer than that the stone of Daniel 2 does not represent the, represent the second coming of Christ, but represents exactly what Daniel says it does the kingdom which God is about to set up in the days of these kings, the kingdoms of today represented by the feet and toes of the great image. Now, one more point here. 
the message does not teach that this stone uh, represents us. The message teaches that this stone represents the 144,000. And the 144,000 sadly may not be us unless we are very careful. So how could we say now that this stone represents us, that represents Davidians? For Davidians got a lot of uh, people among them that may not, I say a lot, I don't know how many, but too many, may not make it to the end the way they're going because they're not taking care of what they should be taking care of. They're setting a wrong example, word and in deed, doing things, going places, eating as they shouldn't. They're no example. God is not going to seal and save them in the ark today. So we couldn't teach that. That would be folly to teach that. How would I know to say, well, that includes so-and-so, but it excludes so-and-so, and so on. It includes this Davidian and excludes that Davidian. Well, we can't do things like this. So we don't teach that at all. This is a fabrication here. This is this is just downright error. These people don't know what they're talking about. Too bad. And that spreads, you know. They spread that all around. And it comes back to us. Well, this is what you teach because we, 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 we got in a letter from one of your believers. <laughs> what are you going to do about it? All you have to do is shake your head and say it's too bad and try to give them the truth if they'll listen. Take it. Oh, I want to read you one more statement here. Testimony Ministry, page 17. His church is to be a temple built after the divine similitude. Now, you tell me what kind of a temple this would be. Would it have four million tares in it or any tares in it at all? If built after the divine similitude, that's what his temple is to be. So what has to take place? Don't you see what's implicit in this whole equation? That he has to come and purge out of the church, purify of the church by purging out of it all the tares. All the dross. See, that's the dross right there. You never hear anything more about that mountain. Not another word spoken of it. What happened to it? It was dross thrown away, just like dross is thrown away. But what about the gold? You find that in Malachi. Malachi, the third chapter. His church is to be a temple built after the divine similitude. Now listen closely. And the angelic architect, you know who he is, has brought his golden measuring rod. Why didn't he come with something else? Has brought his golden measuring rod from heaven that every stone that makes up that stone, you see, that's what that's made up of, all these stones that he's talking about, that every stone may be hewed and squared by the divine measurement. That tells you exactly what Ezekiel uh, 20, uh, 37 says, you see, all to pass under the rod. That's one figure. This is another figure that would be measured by the uh, golden uh, rod be hewed and squared by the divine measurement and polished to shine as an emblem of heaven radiating in all directions now you can see the loud cry coming up here you see when god gets his his perfect uh ministry of uh, people that are devoid of of sin and error be radiating in all directions the bright clear beams of the son of righteousness now who's in them christ is within them the hope of glory that's what they see. They don't see anybody else. The world. The church is to be fed with manna from heaven. What's the manna? It's the truth. Not what they're holding up. Where's the book? It's got it right here in my hand. Not what they're holding up. You see this false torch. The church is to be fed with manna from heaven and to be kept under the sole guardianship of his grace, clad in complete armor of light and righteousness. That's a beautiful picture now. But this is not the picture we have. She enters upon her final conflict. The dross, the worthless material, will be consumed. It's all gone now. And what's going to happen then? And the influence of the truth 
testifies to the world of his sanctifying and ennobling character. Then the world will come, you see. The hypocrites are all gone. They can't point to Advent and say, look at those fellows there. As they told me uh, when I first became an Adventist. Don't have anything to do with them, a friend of mine said. And the, uh, and the head deacon in the church told me, said, look, don't have any Adventist work for you, for they'll do you. I thought, what is this? He had deacon in the church telling me this. He'd learned from experience, I guess. And maybe he was among them too, I don't know, for he never would accept the message. Um, I told you I was going to read you this, uh, this passage on 407 of Testimonies to Ministers, which is the opposite picture, 407. The controversy waxed stronger. There never will be a time in the history of the church when God's worker can fold his hands and be at ease saying, all is peace and safety. Well, if I were to read to you from page 211 of volume 5, that's what they're saying, peace and safety. They don't think anything's going to happen. Then it is that sudden destruction cometh. Everything may move forward amid apparent prosperity. Now, folks, this is what you've got today, or did have. Now, the, uh, the false face is being torn off of it here and there. And behind this facade, you can see that there is not uh, what they say. Things are in bad shape, and they know it now. Everything may move forward amid apparent prosperity, but Satan is wide awake and is studying and counseling with his evil angels another mode of attack where he can be successful. The contest will wax more and more fierce on the part of Satan, for he is moved by a power from beneath. As the work of God's people moves forward with sanctified, resistless energy. Now, I just read to you from over here when it's going to do that, you see? What's going to make it do that? He's going to come with his golden rod. He's going to measure his people. He's going to polish them, square them, and polish them. Then it says that the truth will go forth like that, you see? The influence of the truth. As the work of God's people moves forward with sanctified, resistless energy, planting the standard of Christ's righteousness, where? In the church, see? The church says they're going to plant it where? In the world. No. How can the church plant in the world when they don't have it themselves, you see? Planting the standard of Christ's righteousness in the church, moved by a power from the throne of God, the great controversy will wax stronger and stronger and will become more and more determined. Mind will be arrayed against mind, plans against plans. Principles of heavenly origin against principles of Satan. Oh, this closing thought. Truth in its varied phases will be in conflict with error in its ever-varying, increasing forms, which, if possible, will deceive the very elect. Now, this one from volume 1, page 190. This shows the condition the church is in now in contradistinction to the other picture. I saw that the Lord was whetting his sword in heaven to cut them down, these are the unconverted, the great majority, the great, uh, what's his name? Proportion. Yes, that's right. And I saw that the Lord was whetting his sword in heaven to cut them down. Oh, that every lukewarm professor could realize the clean work that God is about to make among his professed people. This adds to it here, page 372 and 373 of Testimonies to Ministers. Page after page might be written in regard to these things. That is, 
dishonesty in the church, uh, bungling. It just gives a whole list of them, you know, everything that's been going on that God has disapproved of and warned against. He says, page after page might be written in regard to these things. Whole conferences are becoming leavened for the same perverted principles. The, the Union Conference president of this conference here was relieved of his work because of this, I can't ever think of that fellow's name. Davenport. Yeah, because of the Davenport scandal. He got his fingers in it too, you see, and, and got some into his pocket. He wasn't the only one. Uh, several of them were moved out. Now he's over here in... in um, no, he's at the institution over there, the uh, in in Kansas. Sean Mission. Huh? Sean Yes, yes, that's where he is. No, the Lord will work to purify His church. I tell you in truth, the Lord is about to turn and overturn in the institution called by His name. No, just apply this generally around the Adventist world. Start uh, start in Washington, at the headquarters, the Review and Herald and the signs of the times in Idaho. You go right down the list of all the big churches, you see, one right after another. The Lord is about to turn and overturn in the institutions called by his name. Just how soon this refining process will begin, I do not know. Pardon me, I cannot say. But it will not be long delayed, deferred. He whose fan is in his hand will cleanse his temple of its moral defilement. He will thoroughly purge his floor. Page 475 tells who does know about this. Elijah, it says. And they're going to say Elijah doesn't know what he's talking about. Yeah. Now, in, in the, uh, the passages I have read from the Bible and the Spirit of Prophecy, you've been able to differentiate between the church militant and the church triumphant. Prophets and kings, uh, I didn't read it, did I? I must read that, 725. This is the church triumphant. One reference will have to do it. Clad in the armor of Christ's righteousness, the church is to enter upon her final conflict. This is the love cry now. Fair as the moon, clear as the sun, and terrible as an army with banners, she is to go forth in all the world, conquering and to conquer. Now what does Matthew 24, 14 tell us? This gospel of the kingdom is to be preached where? In all the world. And this is it, you see. It's this, it's this ministry that is to take it into all the world. Now, that's the church triumphant. And the church militant, you've seen enough of it. I don't think you want to hear more about it. There's plenty more that I had here, uh, four or five more references, but I'll, I'll omit them now. What in, essence, what, what in essence differentiates the church triumphant from the church militant? What is the essential difference? The church militant is militating against sin and depending on justification by grace. Now, the rod says it's militating against truth, too. But I'm not going into that aspect of it now. Spirit process says it's militating against sin. Both are true. The church militant is militating against sin, and depending on justification by grace, uh, or imputed righteousness. Now, this is important to get clear. If you have it clear in your minds, fine. If you don't, try your best to get it clear now that the church as it's set up today and as it, as it uh, is operating is depending upon imputed righteousness, not imparted righteousness. Uh, less and less is it depending upon imparted righteousness. Uh, less frequently do you hear anything about imparted righteousness. It's imputed righteousness. This is 
This is the message of righteousness by faith as they understand it, or at least as they're preaching it. The church militant is militating against sin and depending on justification by grace, on imputed righteousness, whereas the church triumphant is composed of overcomers of sin, those who have the righteousness of Christ, imparted righteousness. Sister White says that the imputed righteousness is our... Our what? I can't hear. Our title to heaven. Imparted righteousness is our fitness for heaven. You see the difference? Christ died to give all men a title to heaven. Now they've got to claim that title. And the way they claim it is accepting the imparted righteousness of Christ. Now the imputed righteousness of Christ is necessary because you have to grow in grace. And as you grow in grace, you become sanctified, regenerated and sanctified. Now because so few of us, in fact, maybe all of us, have, have had a, a, a disappointing experience in overcoming. We don't seem to be able to get it all together, you know, get the grace of Christ to make us consistent overcomers. And so what do we depend upon? Imputed righteousness. We don't have any imparted righteousness, you see. We say the wrong thing at the wrong time. We fly off the handle. We do things wrong. <laughs> Discouraging, right? Sitting and repenting, sitting and repenting. That's what it amounts to. So they depend upon imputed righteousness or righteousness by grace. But this is where what we need to clear, that imparted righteousness is righteousness by grace too. If it weren't for the grace of God, we would never have been able to develop the character to withstand sin and and have righteousness become a part of us. So it's all righteousness, you see, by grace. But when we use the, the phrase righteousness by grace, and synonymously with imputed righteousness, that means that we just go back to the Lord and say, Lord, we're sorry, forgive us, and that's it. We go out again. See, Grace has, has done its work. Uh, God's forgiven us, and he, he brings us around to it again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, and again, until finally, what does he say? They are what? Joined to, joined to their idols, leave them alone. They didn't develop imparted righteousness. They didn't develop the fitness for heaven. I want to illustrate this. Maybe you, you folks have seen the same thing in, in peas, uh, edible peas. You could get a nice big pod. Looks as though it's going to be full of nice firm peas. See? You open it up, and all it's got is little teeny, teeny little things in it. No big piece at all. Now, off of that same vine, You'll pick another pod, don't look any different, and you open up, you've got well-formed peas. Now, one developed of the imparted righteousness, as it were, imparted virtue of that vine, and the other didn't. It just had, it just had a pretense. It looked all right on the outside, but it wasn't all right inside. God knows that. Now, finally, finally, what is the gospel as given by Christ based on? And I'll read you this statement here. This is page 12 of the same book, Amazing Grace. The gospel message as given by the Savior himself was based on, now what do you say? Huh? Grace. Oh, what do you say? What is it based on? Truth. Based on the truth, but the truth in what form? No, I'll read it now. The gospel message as given by the Savior himself was based on the prophecies. Now you see, this is a radical departure from what Adventist ministers think and teach. They don't teach the righteousness of Christ is based on that, or the gospel of the kingdom is based on that. But when we go into it, and I don't have time as I wish I had, that's always the way at the end of the way, at the end of the line. Now I'm going to read it, the statement at the bottom here. As the message of the first of Christ's first advent 
announced the kingdom of his grace, so the message of his second advent announces the kingdom of his glory. Now, the kingdom of grace came in while he was there. And now they're going to postpone the kingdom of glory, you see, until the new earth. We want to see the kingdom of glory now. That's what he had in the beginning. And now he's going to restore all things. And uh, this is what we need to grasp, is that God is in the business of restoring every divine institution, as, as this book says. Uh, what is it? This one. This six five. Yeah, in the time of the end, every divine institution is to be restored. You see, so uh, God is going to to uh, fulfill that promise that every divine institution is going to be restored. Thank you for listening. This has been a production of the Davidian Seventh Day Adventist Association. You can find us online at www.bashanhill.org and you can call us at 417-835-2162.